Well, it's good to be with you once again. I don't get to do this very often, so it's good to be with you. I appreciated the song that the worship team sang a little bit earlier. Um, the song was the, the title of it, I Am Who, I, Who You Say That I Am. Is that, is that the song? I Am Who You Say That I Am. Okay. So that was really special because the title of this message is I Am Not Who I Was. And so we're going to be talking about sanctification today. And those two phrases, you know, I am who you say that I am, and I am not who I was, go together in this term of sanctification. My kids used to love to play this game. They, they still enjoy it, but they loved it when they were in junior high and high school. And the name of the game was Would You Rather? You guys know this game, Would You Rather? So let me just give you a would you rather when it comes to today. Would you rather be sitting here today knowing that you're truly saved, certain that you're going to heaven? Or would you rather be sitting here today guessing that you're saved, hoping that you're going to heaven, but not sure? Which one would you rather be? The first one. Take, take door number one every time. You know, we are never expected in Scripture to be left guessing. God has a way in which he has uh, given us in his word that we should know for sure, there, there should be no doubt that when we die, we know for sure that we will be with him in heaven. But so often we ask people um, outside these doors, and maybe some of your friends and family and coworkers, you'll ask them a question like, do you know for sure that you're going to heaven? And they'll usually say, well, I hope so. Well, I think so. It'd be nice to know that, but you know, can anybody really know? You had those kind of conversations? The Bible is very clear. We should be able to know for certain. And God has provided a way for us to know, and it's found in his word. But it's also found in something, in something that we're going to be talking about today, in this thing called sanctification. I want to share with you what uh, scripture talks about. And it's before we get into the Hebrews 12 passage, but if you wanna turn to Hebrews 12, that's where we're gonna be. But before we get there, I wanna share with you a passage that Paul talked about, how do we know for certain that we are going to heaven when we pass, pass from this earth? There is both an inward, there is an inward reality and there is an outward reality. And it's found in Romans chapter eight. And the passage goes like this. There is therefore now, present now, right now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. That's the inward reality. It's the inward truth that if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, there is this inward thing inside saying, yep, that Jesus who died on the cross for me, he died for my sin. And you know it without any shadow of doubt. You know that you've embraced that. But then the passage goes on and talks about something different. And it says this, in order that, in order that the righteous, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that is what we're going to be talking today about, which is that outward reality. It's the outward manifestation that something inward has already happened. And I want to challenge you that as you listen to this talk today, I want you to take out maybe a piece of paper, maybe you're taking notes, or, or maybe just, you know, a scrap piece of paper. And I want you to start taking, you know, those little tally sheets. You know, you know how you take a tally, you know, it's the one, two, three, four, and then you do the cross, one, two, three, and cross. So what I want you to do is I want you to just do that little tally sheet. Every time God pokes you, prods you, taps you in your, in your conscience, in your heart, saying, that might be worth considering. That might be something that you, I, need to work on. So just do that for me, will you? Because we're going to be talking about that here at the end. You know, we're in a sermon series all about these doctrines that you can't afford to get wrong. A few weeks ago, we talked about salvation, right? About the gospel. Last week, what did we talk about? Justification. This week, we're talking about sanctification. Next week, we'll talk about glorification. But I just want to, you know, people get, some people, not, not all of us, but some people get really wigged out when we start throwing out these theological terms and we feel like, okay, you're, you're, you're talking like a lawyer. Sorry, Brent. I, you're, those words are just going over my head. I don't get what you're saying. You know, can you just explain to me in clear English, what are you talking about? So we're going to be talking about that today in in this thing called sanctification. And when it comes to these doctrines, the reason that we're talking about these doctrines are because these are the ones we cannot afford to get wrong. So at Village Church, we have tiers of doctrines. So let me just go through these tiers. On the bottom shelf, tier number three, are the things that we can give grace on. It's like preaching styles, you know, some people say you've got to do expository preaching. Some people say you can do topical preaching. You know, it's, it's preaching styles. It's worship music. You know, can, can we do hymns or do we all have to do praise songs? You know, those kind of things are, we have preferences, but there is no clear teaching in Scripture about whether you're supposed to preach a certain way or you're supposed to sing a certain kind of song. So we call those third tier. These are bottom shelf. And you that have small kids, or grandkids in my case, things that are on the bottom shelf, go ahead and play with. Don't worry about that. It's okay. But then we start moving up. And second tier items are those things that are a little more serious, a little more important. Calvinism or Arminianism? You know, which one is it? Or is it a combination of the two? Or is it a blending of the two? You know, is speaking in tongues really biblical? Or is it really not biblical? You know, these things can lead you in a certain way based on your understanding and your practice, but still, these are kind of middle-shelf doctrines. What we're talking about in these, this series is this top-shelf, this number one uh, uh, tier preference, and that is the gospel. Are we saved by grace and by, through faith only, or is it also by works? It's important to know that. This thing that we're talking about today, sanctification, we, as we were preparing for this message and we do sermon prep together, we're talking through these things. Is this really, really a top shelf doctrine? 
And I would argue absolutely it is a top shelf doctrine because if you get this thing of sanctification wrong, we're going to see how, how important it is to the writers of the Gospels, to the New Testament authors. It is serious that we cannot afford to get this thing called sanctification wrong. So let me give you some definitions. I'm just going to list, the first one I'm going to list is going to be on the screen, but then I'm going to give you a little more clarity. Justification is to be, declared, to be declared holy, to be declared righteous. It is a legal term in Scripture. It is used as like a judge says, not guilty. It is a stamp of you know, legal binding. It is what we talked about last week. But sanctification is to become holy, it is a practical term in Scripture. And this, this message could easily be, could be coming across by the end of the, the time that I talk that, Tim, you just beat us up. And I do not want to beat you up. I do not want that to come across. Because of, of the doctrines that we're talking about, especially these four, this is the one doctrine, this is the one theological term that you and I own something on. This is the one, you know, that... The gospel done for us by Jesus, all right? Justification, done by Jesus, God declares it to be a certain way. Sanctification, we own a part of this. And it can be easily uh, construed by the end of this talk that you think, well, he just beat me up and pointed out all my mistakes. And I don't want that to come across. But I do want us to get to the point where we realize that sometimes we feel so comfortable in our Christianity, we look at ourselves and we say, you know what? I'm doing pretty good in my Christianity. I'm better than, you know, and you start thinking about different people and you look around the room and you say, well, I live a better life or a more righteous life than so-and-so or so, you know, don't do that. Because what God wants to do through sanctification is to continue to make you more righteous, more holy, never be satisfied where you're at. Justification that is clearly taught in Scripture, you are saved. Sanctification is you are being saved. That was our passage a few weeks ago. Glorification, next week, you will be saved. Justification is faith in the gospel that removes the legal guilt before God. Sanctification is the revealing of the reality of the gospel in our lives. It is the gospel being worked out in our lives and through our lives. Justification requires accepting the gospel by faith. But sanctification is the faith in the gospel requires that I live an ongoing, obedient life. So here's what I'm really saying. Sanctification says, my actions always follow my beliefs. I say I believe something, but do my actions demonstrate that they do? So this message is really geared directly to Christians. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, or if you want to share this message with someone else who's not a Christian, they're going to have trouble embracing this thing because you cannot be sanctified until you've been justified until you've placed your faith in the gospel through faith. So here's, here's a reality. The bigger my view of God, so the, the, my understanding, my view of God, the bigger that my view of God is, and the, 
the more that I will be willing and wanting to obey him. So continue. Remember I was telling you about put that slash mark, those little tally marks. How big is your view of God? You know, some people, you know, they come to faith in Jesus and, you know, Jesus is my friend. And the, the country song, it's a great song. Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, Jesus is not your co-pilot. Jesus is not your buddy. He is your brother, but he is the savior of the world. Do you see Jesus? Do you, is your view of Jesus the holy and righteous son of God that could have called down myriads of angels to get him off the cross, but chose not to. We sometimes see Jesus as our buddy, as our friend, which he is our friend. God is our father. We should embrace that aspect where we can run to him as a loving father. But sometimes we have this view of God that, oh, he's just the great grandfather in the sky and he's gonna overlook my sin and he's gonna accept my mistakes intentional mistakes and he's going to be okay with that we can't have that view of God why can't I afford to get this thing called sanctification wrong well personally here's what the writers of the New Testament say Peter says if you get sanctification wrong, wrong your prayers are hindered Paul says your ministry is fruitless John says, your relationship with God will continue to struggle if you get this thing of sanctification wrong. And James says, if you get this thing of sanctification wrong, you may not even be a Christian. That's how serious it is to the writers of the New Testament. So the normal expectation, when you look at Scripture and when you start reading through the New Testament, here's the way it works out. Here's the way it lays out in every book by every writer. No one changes. You come to faith in Christ. The expectation is that then that gospel starts in your heart, in your life, and it works its way out in our actions. There is always a fruit-bearing expectation for those who have trusted Christ. The reason that we're saved, and you know God could save us, allow us to come to faith and understanding of Jesus dying for our sins, we could embrace that, be, be saved, be forgiven, and God just zap us and take us right to heaven. But he doesn't do that most of the time. He leaves us here to bear fruit. And fruit is the thing that we're talking about today in this thing called sanctification. Here's what's sad. A lot of people will come to faith in Christ and they will, they will get to heaven as the old saying is, by the skin on their teeth. How much skin is on your teeth? I guess it depends on whether you brush your teeth or not this morning. <laughs> but usually it's pretty thin, isn't it? And some people will get to heaven, and we'll get to heaven, and we'll think, oh, now that's a surprise. I didn't think I would see them here. We cannot rest our salvation and our eternal destiny on a prayer that we prayed so many years ago. We cannot rest our eternal destiny on a public profession or a private profession of faith in Jesus when I was eight years old. You can't do that. I shared this, uh, this story with the folks a couple weeks ago at Bartlett. When I was in Bible college 35 years ago, or more, it was more than that. Yeah, more than that, right? 
I had a Greek professor, uh, second-year Greek. We're now seniors. We're about to launch into ministry. You know, we're in our second semester. You know, we've studied all kinds of stuff. And he starts the class without a Greek lecture. He starts the class by saying, gentlemen, you're all going to be pastors, missionaries, youth pastors, and serving, serving in your church. How do you know you're a Christian? Answer that question. How do you know you're going to heaven when you die? Well, one guy says, well, I prayed a prayer when I was six years old. One guy says, well, I prayed a prayer when I was 15 years old. And they started, well, I remember my mom said I did such and such, and I walked the aisle. He says, stop. How do you know you're alive? And don't one of you tell me, you know, you pull out your birth certificate and say, well, I was born on such and such a day. See? You can't tell me that. The way you know you're alive is because you do what live people do. You know you're alive because you eat and breathe and sleep and you walk around and you do the things that live people do. You know that you're a Christian because you do the things that Christians do. And that was radical. That is what I'm talking about today. You do the things that Christians do. And that sanctification, that, that continually being holy and wanting to live a holy life proves not only to yourself but to others that there has been an acceptance of the gospel. So let me ask you a few questions. Old Testament characters. Was King Saul, a, a, we can't call him a Christian because he was pre-Jesus, was he a believer in the Messiah? King Saul. What do you say? Was King Saul a believer? I would say probably not. Probably not. Think about it. He was chosen by God. He was head and shoulders over all the other men in the land. He was crowned. God gave him a purpose to lead God's people in a unique way. He was their first king. He had an open platform to do whatever God would want him to do. But he wasted his life. Wasted it. How about Samson? Was Samson a believer in the Messiah? Did he trust in what God's plan was? What do you think? Well, if we read the chapter before, this one that we're going to get to, Hebrews chapter 11, Samson's mentioned there. Remember I said there are some people that are going to get to heaven by the skin of their teeth? Samson, I think, is one of those guys. He was chosen by God. He was gifted by God. He led God's people, but he wasted all his potential. The potential that he had to do great things for God were wasted by his choices in life. What about the Apostle Paul? Was he a Christian? Did he accept the Messiah? Absolutely. And no hesitation. You guys are all nodding your head saying, yep, yep, absolutely. How do we know that? Well, let me just remind you of a couple of things about the Apostle Paul. He killed Christians. He served himself. He hated the gospel. He hated God's church. But then something happened. God chose him. God gifted him. God used him to spread the gospel through the known world at that time like no one else. His life demonstrated that there had been an inner change, that something had happened inside. His life demonstrated it. So here's how sanctification works just so we can all know kind of, all right, how does this really work out? I do it myself, 
and for myself. You say, what? That's behavior modification, isn't it? You know, behavior modification says you do something for yourself and, and just because of yourself. If it stopped right there, if I stopped right there, I would be 100% wrong. But I want to make sure that I lay the foundation that this thing called sanctification, some of that is true. There is an element of personal responsibility that I do it myself. I obey. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is a, there is an onus on me that I am to live this life out because I want to for myself. But it goes beyond that. I make Jesus my master and I allow him to do in me what he wants to do. So it's like the dollar bill. You know, you work, look at the dollar bill on one side, you see a picture of some president. You look on the back side, you see some building. One side of this thing of sanctification, it's on me. And then on the other side, you look at it and it's on God. And so that's where sanctification is important. Because if we only get the first part, then the sanctification is really messed up. If we only get the second part, it's really messed up. Because then we say, well, I don't live a holy life because Jesus doesn't convict me of sin or cause me to work and do things that he wants me to do. It's on him. It's all his fault that I'm not righteous. Well, there's, there's a problem there. This third piece is really important. I'm encouraged in this, this thing called sanctification, when I'm in a community of faith. That's why church attendance and church membership is so vital to sanctification. Because I see it modeled before my eyes. I look, and I don't look at people and say, I'm better than them. I look at them and I say, they're better than me. I look at them and say, man, the way they live a holy life, the way they live a sanctified life, the way that I see them living their life is an encouragement to me. And it encourages me, they encourage me when I succeed. And when I fall and fail, I feel challenged by my church family because they come around me and they don't beat me up. They don't, they don't point out my sin and my, my shortcomings. They come around and say, you're better than that. You can do this. You can live a holy life. Let me help you. We are going to get to the text, I promise. So before we get there, I just want to lay a little groundwork Hebrews chapter 11, the first 11 chapters for 1 through 11. Let me just kind of give you the groundwork here. This book is written by an author that's talking to Hebrew Christians. And they thought that they needed to continue in the old Mosaic law and the systems that was in place to continue to earn their salvation. In other words, they thought you come to faith in Jesus, but now you've got to uphold all the legal uh, stuff in the Old Testament and they were clearly messed up. They're told in the first 10 chapters, consider Jesus. Consider that he is the perfect priest and that he is the perfect sacrifice. He goes beyond the entire system of the Old Testament. He's so much better than that. Consider him. Look to him. He is so much greater than Old Testament law. 
And then in chapter 11, the writer gives the, the, these Hebrew Christians a list. And he gives them a list of people and says, I want you to consider these people. These people lived out their faith, their faith in Messiah. They lived it out with a holy and sanctified life. So look to them. Consider them. And then we start in chapter 12, verse 1, with this word called therefore. Not all therefores are created equal. Did you know that? Sometimes the therefores are just transitional words. This one is different. This word says, okay, I've said these 11 chapters. Now let me summarize this and apply this. Okay, with all that as a foundation, let me get to the way you live this out. So my first point here in this message is make it hurt. You'll understand what I mean by that here in just a second. Follow along as I read in verse, 11, uh, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, I need to stop here and just make a point. Normally we think a great crowd, a stadium crowd of witnesses. That's not what is meant here. It is not in number, but in character. Great a crowd is the, the quality, not the quantity of, of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then he makes a little transition. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of the shedding of blood. Clearly, he's addressing Christians, people who have accepted the Messiah, Jesus. And he's basically saying, okay, I know that you people, you have looked and would want to mimic the character and the faith of those people I just mentioned in chapter 11. But let's make it a little more close to home. He says something like this. He says, there is a weight. There is a weight that drags us down. In the Greek language, this word is, is kind of unique. There, Actually, in these first four verses, he uses some words that are only used one time in the entire New Testament, and it's right here. It is very kind of a, a unique passage. This word really means anything that would slow us down, that would hinder us, any kind of weight that would bog us down. This weight is not necessarily sin. So I want to get that clear. This is not, he's going to get to that in a second. But this thing that slows us down, this weight that kind of hinders us, is not necessarily sin. It's anything that keeps us from running as fast as we should be running. It might be something that entangles us. It might be something that drags us down. But it's not necessarily sin. Remember when I asked you about those little tally marks? Is there anything in your life that may not be sin, but it may be something that's dragging you down. It may be something that is preventing you from giving your 100% to the Lord. 
Is there something in your life like that? You may not know what it is, but others around you, they can see it. They can see this thing that, you know, is distracting you, that is taking you away from the, the things that are righteous, the things that are important to God. Maybe you do know what it is. What are you going to do about it? Let me give you an example of this. Back in the 1980s, uh, if you ever watched the Tour de France and, and you saw long-distance bike riders, they always wore painter's hats. You ever seen that? Some of you are not, you're not around in the 80s. I, I get that. But some of us were. They wore these little hats, these little skull hats. They had a little bill on the front that was only just you know, that far. And they wore that hat um, back in the 80s. But starting in the 90s and 2000s, they went to a different kind of helmet. You know, because we have to be safe, we wear helmets. But the helmets, if you see the helmets that these long-distance bike riders wear now, they look like a teardrop. They start off round in the front, and they come back way back. Some of those things, you know, if you've ever seen them, you know, they're like this long, and they come back to a narrow point in the back. Here is the point that I'm trying to make. The, the bike riders back in the 80s, they didn't know what they didn't know. But as technology advanced, they learned that, you know what, that, that painter's hat was not the best thing for me as a long-distance bike rider. And that's the way it is with this thing, this weight that he's talking about here. There are things that have been in your life that when you first come to faith in Christ and you say, well, you know, I can just really deal, I don't, I don't really need to deal with this or, you know, I can deal with it later and it's a little thing, but as you mature, as you grow in sanctification, God keeps prompting you and says, you know what, you need to give this up because I've got something better. I've got a better kind of helmet for you. We're going to be talking about more of that here in just a minute. What is the thing that's keeping you down? What is the thing that's keeping you from doing what God has best for you? He also talks about the sin. He says he talks about the weight, and then he says there is a sin which clings so closely. In the NIV, it's the sin that so easily entangles us. This one clearly is sin. There's two things that he's talking about here. This thing can be a sin that's very clever. It can be very uh, entangling. It can be, you know, it's, it's like a vine. If you've ever seen a vine, you know, uh, I think of the, the movie Jumanji, you know, where the vines come up and grab them. You know, that is the kind of sin he's talking about. It is the, it is the sin that can drag you down more than you want to go. It would be like this. It would be like I wrestled in high school. I always went in the wrestling match with this you know, tight singlet. You know? And the reason why is because you don't want to give your opponent anything to grab a hold of. What if you went in with a bathrobe on? What if you played football with hair down to here hanging out of the back of your helmet? You do know that's part of the, they did classify that as part of the jersey. They can grab that. That is the kind of thing that he's talking about here. That's, that's not smart. Not smart at all. So I want to ask you a question. Can there be a sin that so clings to a person or, or is so closely attached to someone who loves and worships Jesus and they don't even know it? Can there be? Thank you, Beth. I agree. We have all kinds of personal examples. We have all kinds of modern day examples where people who are serving God, loving God, worshiping God, and it looks on the outward side that 
everything's going really good, but you get up close to them, and there is this one sin that has got them by the throat, and they don't even know it. And eventually, what happens to that one sin? It becomes a monster that takes them down. He says, we need to run this race in this passage. And we normally think when we read that word, we think, oh, he's talking about long-distance runners. Guess what? I'm not a long-distance runner. In high school, I was a sprinter. I always used to say, if you've got to run more than one time around this track, get a car. I'm not going one more time. Not two, no. All right? That is not what he's talking about here. He's talking about, and it's, it's one of those, again, it's one of those words that is hard to translate in English. He is talking about any kind of athletic competition that has to do with endurance. It's not a hockey game that goes three periods. I mean, this is a hockey game that goes forever. It's a football game that goes forever. It's a baseball game that goes beyond nine innings. It's a race that goes more than 26 miles. That's what he's talking about here. And then he says, looking to Jesus in this phrase. You know, they had been looking at everyone in chapter 11. They had been putting their eyes on those people that, hey, those, those guys and gals in chapter 11, they're great examples to me. But now he says, let me give you even a better example. Look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the one who brought us faith, brought us to faith. He is the one that perfects the faith in us. And then he uses this phrase, and not grow weary or faint-hearted. Again, this is one of those phrases that's only used once in the New Testament. And Aristotle used this, this phrase to talk about athletes that would collapse before the event finished. Or they would collapse right after they had finished the race. In other words, it's not a good thing. And what he is saying, what the writer is saying to these Hebrews, hey, you're still in this race. You can't collapse. You can't quit before the finish line. And once you get to the finish line, now you're going to be in glory. But you cannot quit beforehand. Yesterday, I did something that I didn't think I was ever going to do. My son, I listened to my son, and he invited me to join him in something called a Tough Mudder. Have you ever heard of a Tough Mudder? It's supposed to have been 10 miles. One guy had a pedometer, and he said it was 11.8 miles. So you got to run all this distance. And then there was 20 obstacles. Go ahead and throw up that picture, if you would. Did the picture not come through? Okay. All right, so it's just a picture of me and Matt Souls and my son. And so, I can't believe you're standing there right now. Oh, yeah. I seriously. <laughs> In some ways, I can't believe it either. Oh, yeah. Cold water. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you've seen it before. Oh, yeah. If you don't know what it is, you need to Google it. And just, it's, it's something else. But here's the thing about that Tough Mudder. It, it, it is such a right now illustration of what this thing called sanctification is all about. I would have never done that alone. There would have been no way I would have tried to go through that thing by myself. But I had a team of people around me that could encourage me. I had guys, you know, Matt Souls. If you don't know Matt, Matt is, uh, you know, he's a stud upon studs. I mean, he's, he, he, can, he can run forever. He's strong as, you know, uh, Samson. I mean, he's just able to do anything. 
And I, had, I could always look to him and the other guys that were on our team. You know, and that is the way sanctification is supposed to work out. It is an endurance race. It is something that you, you don't do by yourself. To be sanctified, there is part of this that you have to you know, have the sheer determination that you will do for yourself and, and because it's the right thing. But there is this other side that you have teams of people and others around you that encourage you and help you. And that's the way it should work out. So here's the thing that I want to share with you. The power for my sanctification is not in me. It's in Jesus. So there is that side that to live this holy life out, the power comes through Jesus. But the reality of my sanctification is obedience. It is in me. I own it. I have to take ownership on it. I have to take responsibility for my own sanctification. How do we know this? It's because Jesus is our example of 100% obedience to the cross. He obeyed even to the point of death. And the writer of Hebrews says, you in your struggle have not yet struggled to the point of shedding of blood. Now they may, and we may, so make it hurt or nothing will change. Second point, make it last. Verse five, and have you not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Because they had. My son, do not regret, regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and, he, and chastens every son whom he receives. It is for, dis, uh, it is for discipline that you have, you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? It's a great question. If you are left without uh, discipline, in, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as, they seemed best to them, as it seemed best to them. For, but he, meaning God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seem, seems, painful, rather, uh, seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. They had forgotten this point that discipline, that suffering, always equals sonship or daughtership. And often we think we're going through a struggle and we think, God, where are you? And the reality is, God is right there. When he puts us through, you know, the trials of life, he is right there for us and he's using those trials to mold us into a greater image of his son. Let me just share with you some thoughts here about discipline versus punishment. Because a lot of times we hear the word discipline and we think it's punishment. Punishment and discipline are different. Punishment always addresses and only addresses the action. It, never, it, it, it deals only with the past mistakes. It's only concerned about the action, not about the heart. 
It's not concerned about future behavior. You think about our correctional system in the United States. Is it for discipline? Is it for punishment? And I'd argue it's for punishment. There is no correction here. There is no discipline in our correctional system. If it were so, then 68 to 75 percent. I did all kinds of research, and the statistics from you know the last 10 years says between 68 and 75 percent of all inmates to federal penitentiaries will eventually come back to the penitentiary once again serve time within five years. Now that's crazy. There is no correction here. It is only about punishment, and the punishment must not be severe enough, or they wouldn't be returning, you know, almost three-fourths of them would not be re returning within five years. But discipline is different. Discipline addresses the heart. It, instructs, it is instruction that aims to increase a virtue and character within the individual. Discipline is about virtue. It's about character. Discipline is mainly concerned about the heart, not just the action. And the whole training and the whole education of, of parenting to children is all about cultivating their minds, but also their morals, about their character. No one likes to be disciplined. You know, my brother, Renee and I used to laugh at my brother. He has four kids, and the kids would be misbehaving, and he would say this phrase. Parents, you got to love this. You want some discipline? What kid's going to jump up and down and say, yeah, 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 yeah? I mean, I'd look at my brother and say, are you dumb? Why would you ask them that question? Of course they don't want discipline. No discipline is, is pleasant at the time. No one likes that. But we know that when we are disciplined, we are legitimate sons and daughters of God. And so we should embrace that. You know, I, I wanna, I've shared this with several people and I want to share this thought with you. God is not in the taking business. God is not the great thief that says, let me take your sin. Now, he, Jesus did that. But what he says is, please release that sin, that weight that so easily entangles us. Give it to me so I can exchange it for something better. And here's the problem. We don't want to give it up. We enjoy that that thing that weights us down. We enjoy that sin that you know, we've grown, grown so comfortable with that we just don't want to let it go. And God says, but if you'll let it go, I'll exchange it for something better if you'll just let me. What are you holding on to that God would rather you release to him? Make it last by accepting discipline from a loving father. Because that's what he is. Number three, make it real. In, in college, back in my Bible college days, we had a guy named John Beckham. John Beckham, um, I don't know where he's at spiritually today, but back then, he was, he was an amazing guy. And he, he and I were kind of cut from the same kind of cloth. We were little rough kids, you know. You know we didn't really grow up in church. We'd go to Bible college. we see all these kids that you know, grew up in church. And he would make this statement. We actually nicknamed him Be For Real Beckham. And he used to say, you know, people would be acting stupid, making bad choices, and he'd point, Be For Real. Be For Real. Be For Real. And he was, he was harsh, but at the same time, he was like, you're frustrating me because you claim to know Jesus, but you're not living for him. 
You're making bad choices and you continue to make bad choices. And what you're doing just does not bring glory to God. Here's the warning that the writer of Hebrews says. It's in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. It's a warning. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if they reject him who warns them from heaven. So the one who is, he's talking about warning them from earth is Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets warned the Hebrews about what God wanted for their life, but they rejected him. Then he says, let me warn you, if you reject him, them, what about rejecting the one that speaks from heaven, which is Jesus, which is the word of God? There's consequences, because he says, escape, escape, escape from what? And he's talking about consequences. Consequences don't determine your eternal destiny. Consequences in this life determine how our lives will reflect Jesus to others and to ourselves. So that's what he's talking about, those consequences. What's that going to be like? Well, there's a promise in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and it says this. This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we, endured, if we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, though, we also, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So there's that reality that we own a part of this thing called sanctification. And I would ask this question. If you're faithless, if you're, not, if you're not living a sanctified life, good luck. Good luck at the you know, time when you die. If you are faithful, if you are sanctified, the rewards both here on this earth and in heaven will abound. We're never meant, never meant to be guessing about our salvation. We're never meant to be left that way. The only reason that we'd be guessing about our salvation or about our turn of destiny is because our life doesn't reflect an inward truth. So make it real by taking God seriously and you'll take sin seriously. So I want to leave you with three so what's. So what, number one, how many times has the Holy Spirit convicted you, poked you about something during this message? What are you going to do about those pokings? What are you going to do about those convictions? What are you going to do about the weight or the sin that are holding you back? What are you going to do about those? What is your normal response? When, when the Holy Spirit prompts you, what's your normal response? Is it defensiveness or is it surrender? How do I change? How do you change? Number one, by letting the Holy Spirit do his work in you. So how are you doing with that? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to work in you and through you? How are you doing about obeying the Lord and his word? How are you doing? How are you doing with that? Jesus said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How are you doing with that? Number three, are you the same person you were last year this time? And when you look at your life, and you look at how righteous you were a year ago versus what God has done in your life this year, are you making progress? You should be making some kind of progress. You should be. You should be making progress. 
the more you're sanctified, the more you, God can use your life to bring him glory. Just remember that. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that in spite of how often we get wigged out over these terms of justification, sanctification, glorification, there is a practical side of each of those. There is a side that challenges our hearts, is easy to understand, and can be applied right here and now. So I pray that you've done that through this message and that you will cause us to see you as a holy, righteous God, as the Savior of the world who gave his life and that we should give our life for. That we should see your word as something serious to be taken and applied each day of our lives. And as we do that, Lord, we will bring you glory. We will be fruitful Christians. And we will manifest the truth, the inner truth, in a practical reality to others. In Jesus' name, amen.